This is an ABC podcast. Cosmetic enhancement comes with plenty of risks. Throbbing, purple. After three days, it became pussy because there's no oxygen going to the area. My breathing was pretty much ruined. It was really bad. Botched surgeries, safety breaches, and in the worst case scenario, fatal results. Horror stories aside, chasing your aesthetic ideal is no easy task. Beneath every Insta-perfect photograph is a ton of time, energy and money that's often glossed over. That idea of spending a huge proportion of your salary on, you know, moisturisers, it's quite mad. And that's not to mention the pain and prolonged recovery times. I'm Siobhan Marin and this is episode three of Face Value, Killer Curves and Harsh Realities. Remember Natasha from our previous episodes? She shared her story of getting two nose jobs, including one overseas that killed some of her cartilage and left her sniffling 24-7. But those experiences didn't put Natasha off changing her body. She wanted to get what's been considered the world's most dangerous cosmetic procedure, a Brazilian butt lift. And the reason she wanted it, well... It wasn't even about her butt. You know, even despite being, like, considered, like, the curvier girl and stuff, like, I did have hip dips. What is a hip dip? <laughs> so hip dips are pretty much, um, the best way to describe it is, like, once you're, you've got, like, your hip bone, um, below that goes inwards. Hip dips. And then your fat. Like, I'd never heard of them before speaking to Natasha and still wasn't quite sure after our chat But an internet image search definitely helped. So looking front on, hip dips are the inward curve below your hip bone but above your thigh. It's basically on your underwear line. My hip dips were quite prominent to the point that I actually was so insecure wearing jeans or like tights. I would always wear something loose on the bottom or like wear a cardigan to like cover my bum. I am a bit much, I have to admit. I don't think I should have been as insecure about it, but it really just annoyed me. It's interesting because, you know, when I think about BBLs, I would have thought people get it because they want this huge bottom. Oh, yeah. It's not just that. It's not just yeah, that. It's not just that. It's, it's, that's what I always try to explain to people because, you know, a lot of people are like, why couldn't you just get to the gym? Like, why don't you just work for it? It's like the gym isn't going to give me the result that I want. Like, I want the smoother curves. There are tons of online workout videos promising to get rid of hip dips through exercise. But Natasha says they often ignore how everyone has a different body to start with. And it was extremely frustrating and it made me just really, really depressed. It's like, why am I not, like, getting these results? So Natasha thought about another option, something she came across on social media as a teen. When I was in high school, I would just, I don't know how I came across it, but I came across like a Spurgeon clinic and um, I followed them on Instagram for a long time. And even since I remember just being in year 11 and 12 and just on my phone and just like looking at their results and thinking, holy wow, (laughs) like I want that. This is amazing. Like you can literally just do this and get that. Like that is so cool. And it's so perfect. Like they give you the perfect smooth curve. She was seeing and liking the before and after results of people who'd had a Brazilian butt lift, otherwise known as a BBL. It's an invasive procedure that involves liposuction and transferring the fat to your bottom. 
yeah, heaps of people do everything overseas and I, I get so scared, like, for them, especially for, like, high-risk surgeries, like, you know, the BBO and stuff. When you do do that exaggerated technique over there, like, there's more risk because they're putting in more fat and then they don't know where, like, if it's going under the muscle or not. And that's why they get these crazy results. They're taking so much fat out at once. Um, it's, it's really scary. Like, and then there's actually been a girl that did unfortunately die from it. She was from Australia. This happened in 2015. Evita Simonicas, a 29-year-old woman from the Gold Coast, went to Mexico for a Brazilian butt lift and died on the operating table. But there were other stories from women who survived the surgery that Natasha came across on social media. Some of them talked about the immense pain. Others shared the gory details. You know, that the messiness of a, because you leak, you know, that, that bloody, like, watery leak, like, you know, the yellow stuff that you leak from. And it just looked so gross. I remember there was this girl I was watching. She's um, got one of her vlogs on YouTube and her recovery video just looked so bad. Like, she would wake up at, like, 3 a.m. and she's recording herself and she's crying. Her voice, like, her voice is so croaky and she's crying, saying, I can't sleep, my back's killing me because she's constantly on her stomach or on her knees and she's just, her whole body's in so much pain. And I'm like, <laughs> Those testimonies didn't stop Natasha from wanting the surgery. The results were just too good. There was this one Mexican influencer who'd had a BBL. And Natasha was like body goals. So last year, at 23, Natasha booked herself in. And then she saw a story about that same influencer, Jocelyn Cano, who travelled to Colombia for her second round of the procedure. One of my BBO inspiration, she went in for her second BBO, obviously, you know, in South America, and she actually died. And this was like a few weeks before mine. So this was the second woman Natasha came across who died getting a Brazilian butt lift. Yeah, and it was just so sad and so frightening as well for me because she was like this girl I really was inspired by. She was just like she wasn't anything too famous. Like she had quite a platform on social media, but she just had an incredible body and I just was really like, you know, obsessed with it. And um and then to see that happen was so sad and she was such a, you know, beautiful young girl. The reasons not to get a Brazilian butt lift were starting to stack up. There is no doubt that I was, like, extremely frightened. Like, yeah, just just from the potential risks, you know. We'll come back to Natasha's story soon. First, we're going to meet someone whose cosmetic nightmare actually led to a surprising transition in his life. And this doesn't go the way you might think. Joseph Taylor is a cosmetic nurse at a clinic in Western Sydney. I hate you because you've got a perfect little Anglo nose. What's your background? Half Polish, half uh, Irish background. Yeah, you've got one of those cute little perfect noses. Yeah. yeah. I do now too, third time round, so. <laughs> <laughs> when Joseph came to meet me after a full day of work, he looked like he could have stepped from a photographic shoot. His skin was glowing. I came across him on Instagram. His account is filled with extreme close-ups of plump, pouty lips. Like Natasha, Joseph wanted a nose job from when he was pretty young. And although part of his motivation was to clear up breathing issues, the main focus was aesthetics. Being from an ethnic background, I am um, an Assyrian, so it's pretty common to have a sort of strong stereotypical woggy big nose and I always hated it. 
Joseph had the first of three nose jobs after his 17th birthday. But rhinoplasty wasn't the cosmetic procedure that changed his life and career. I was originally actually a high school teacher. So I used to be a teacher and that was my thing. I loved education. And then I think what made me change was, first of all, teaching is a very underappreciated career. So that was one of the reasons I left. But the second was I had actually had a cosmetic procedure done. I had never had anything done aside from my nose at this point. And a friend of mine was getting her lips done and she's like, oh, come with me. And I was like, all right, let's go. So I went with her and I'm, I was like, oh, we'll do some lip fillers too. Why not? Now, the nurse had said to me, uh, oh, you don't need any lip fillers because you've got big lips already. So um, let's do some filler in your forehead. Joseph went in asking for one thing and came out with another. It shows how there's a certain suggestiveness in this industry and it can be super persuasive. She said to me, look, you should have it because you've got a nice deep forehead frown there, line. And um, I said, okay. And as soon as she did that, I got an adverse reaction, something called an occlusion. And back when Joseph was a teacher in his 20s, he's in his 30s now, he didn't know what to ask or look out for with that first filler injection. Long story short, she hit one of my main arteries, blocked it. I was a mess, a monster for a year and three months. Really traumatic experience uh, because I was, it was horrific. It was like um, I had a huge gash right in the middle of my forehead. Yeah, because what happens is when you get an occlusion, it's basically when you block an artery with filler and that can lead to all nasty things happening like, you know, skin dying and necrosis and so forth. Uh, So that's what happened to me. Uh, And then to top it off, she was not a real nurse, which I didn't know. Joseph had stumbled into a clinic with an injector posing as a nurse and the filler injection went disastrously wrong. In the first stages, it was swollen. It actually swelled to, say, half the size of a softball, a tennis ball, sorry. Um, Throbbing, purple. After three days, it became pussy because there's no oxygen going to the area. Um, So after, after that had all diffused... Um, I would say it was sort of like, I don't even know how to explain what colour it was, but it was just multiple colours all over my forehead because it was so damaged. I had to grow my fringe really long and I was covering my forehead in makeup um, just to sort of try and make my skin look one colour. So dermal fillers, like Joseph had, which we've talked about in this series, they can plump up your skin and contour your face. But they also come with risks, like vascular occlusions and filler migration. You need to keep in mind that areas like the eyes, around the eyes and the lips, they're the most mobile parts of our faces. We squint, we smile, we talk, we eat, we drink, we do all these things with these two muscles around the eyes and around the mouth. Dr. Iman Joshi has come across filler migration at the practice she runs in Western Sydney. We met her in episode one. No matter how well injected the filler is, there is always the possibility over time and repetitive movement that it's going to migrate. Iman says that some filler manufacturers used to tell injectors that clients should return every six to 12 months for top-ups. But it turns out filler stays in our bodies for much longer. Fillers can last as long as two years, and in some people it can last for many, many more years than that. 
So if you go in every six to 12 months and your injector just keeps filling and filling and filling, you can also get filler migration. And I do see that. So I do see those sort of avatar alien-like cheeks where people have gone somewhere else. Um, and, you know, and they say, I keep telling my injector, I, I feel like this is too much. And they keep telling me it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then eventually they come and see me because they're not happy and they feel like they're not being heard. But Dr. Iman says an occlusion, like what happened to Joseph, well, that's way more dangerous. One of the biggest well-known risks is that of some of the filler going into a blood vessel without our knowledge, and that's called a vascular occlusion or a blocked blood vessel. If it's not picked up within hours, then usually it can lead to cell death downstream. So think about it like a pipe that's sort of feeding all your grass. If you block that pipe, that grass has no further blood flow through it, and over time it will start dying. So generally speaking, I find when I see patients, the, the risks of vascular occlusion tend to be glossed over so that I end up seeing people, sometimes they've had fillers to really high risk areas and they're really shocked and, and they get really anxious when I talk them through the risks of not only a blocked blood vessel, but the extremely rare risk of blindness, which tends to be irreversible. So that's one of the things that tends to alarm me because I just think, how are people doing medical procedures on vulnerable people who don't know any better um, as though it's no more than a beauty procedure or a makeup procedure? Weirdly and rather surprisingly, Joseph's experience of being botched by someone pretending to be a nurse, it actually gave him a new purpose in life. I think the fact that she was an imposter really made me want to... I was like, this is my calling. I'm going to change my career and I'm going to become a registered nurse and really learn how to do cosmetic injectables properly because there's so many cowboys out there. That's incredible because, mm. like, you went one direction but you could have gone the complete opposite direction. Like, this disfigured me for a period of time and... I hate this industry yeah. and I don't want a bar of it, yeah. let alone to work in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. When you go through something like that, um, like you said, you can go one way or the other. And I was just, um, you know, I went through bouts of depression and, you know, some form of my life is over. So it was, I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but I was, you know, you have regrets and, oh, what have I done? It's such a silly mistake and I'm a monster and, you know. And um, it was such, so much, there was so much anxiety and so much depression. Uh, I think I just really somehow fueled it to change who I was, to change my career path. To, I really didn't want anyone else to go through that. So the whole reason Joseph did a nursing degree was so he could become a cosmetic injector. I think you should always research who is treating you and what you're going to have treated from my own personal experience, because I didn't. I just saw a clinic and there was a nurse in there and she was gonna fix me, make me beautiful. And I suffered because of that. After meeting Joe the Injector, as he now calls himself on social media, I caught up with my producer, Sarah Allerley. I'll just start recording anyway. Actually, first of all, I wanted to just do a check-in really. And I was curious, now we're at the episode, which is like, risks and realities and things how you're feeling about you know potentially in the future doing any injectables or anything um 
Yeah, it's interesting. So in this episode, we are speaking with someone who has had like a horror story from an injectable from filler. And that's actually something I hadn't heard of before. I didn't know it could be that extreme if it goes wrong. So I feel like if I was going to get any treatment in the future in that regard, I'd want to be like 100% trusting who I was going to because it is actually quite horrifying what can go wrong. And that's not talked about. You know, you see people on like social media um, who've had filler that sort of migrates or mm, plumps up in the wrong places. People talk about things like pillow face. That's not ideal. Wouldn't want that to happen. But like at the extreme end, what can go wrong in terms of your skin dying around the area, potential blindness for life, like huge. And you just would never know if you're flicking through Instagram thinking, oh, that's a beautiful face, would you? The word filler doesn't sound very scary, whereas Botox sounds a bit kind of toxic, right? And filler, there's all these different types of fillers and there's fillers that aren't approved, they're being imported into Australia. There's like the way fillers can be used. Like I feel like it sounds a lot more safer than it perhaps is, whereas Botox maybe sounds worse than it is. Yeah, so Sarah, I guess we've had plenty of discussions making this podcast off mic about where we both stand when it comes to things like injectables, cosmetic enhancement, you know, the whole gamut of beautifying procedures. Where do you stand? I don't have a stand on it as such, but I guess what I feel is that so much focus on appearance can sort of detract from other stuff in the world. Like I just think like if if people are spending like so much time and energy and money on appearance, then maybe there's other things that are missing out, I guess, is sort of, I don't know, sometimes it can feel a bit vacuous. I feel like there's a bit of a, I don't know, a trickle-down effect where it's like, even if you're like, okay, well, everyone can just do their own thing. It doesn't matter if that's that's their thing, I'll do my thing. But I feel like it affects everyone when, because there's an industry and there's influences and there's social medias and there's the filters on social media. And so what we're comparing ourselves to becomes more unrealistic and then obviously I've got two daughters you know one who's 12 and just kind of yeah I I get that if I had a daughter the same age as yours I would be concerned because there is a lot of pressure on young people and it's only going to continue to grow because they live their lives online I suppose though for me I'm like do you just wish that nobody got work done yeah it's not something that I feel strongly like oh people shouldn't do this like I I do think in the end it's their choice but I just think it's a bit sad that such a pressure to put yourself through so much pain and agony and expense to achieve something that I think is how is it really that important you know Mm. I guess it comes down to what we think is important and yeah people might say that looking good is superficial I've done an interview with Heather Widows, who is a philosopher from the UK, who's been studying this topic for two decades. And it's not just superficial, like beauty is embedded with moral language. We are told that being attractive makes you more worthy, makes you good as a person. And thus, I just don't think that it's unreasonable that people 
want to change themselves because they've been fed that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not certainly not making any argument that that appearance doesn't matter or beauty doesn't matter. And of course, and we all that's human nature. It's just this what we're looking at here is procedures that are quite often invasive, can be dangerous, expensive. And it's, it's that idea of what, um, yeah, that, that increasing expectation that's, that's hard to attain, you know. Okay, so how about I just play the tape? Yep. So this is from my chat with Heather Widows, who is a philosopher based in the UK, and she has been studying beauty as an ethical ideal for quite a while. And I wanted to ask her about her thoughts on, like, the moral judgment we place on certain procedures, right? So I, I put this question to her. And, and then we can just hear her response. In Perfect Me, I have a chapter on routine and extreme. And when you track what would make something routine and what would make it extreme, in fact, none of the objective features hold. So it's not about how risky it is. Some of the most daily routine practices are the most risky. So tanning and skin lightening are some of the most risky practices, far more risky than a breast implant. And yet they're right at the routine end of the spectrum in terms of us doing it daily. Some things that we think are routine um, are incredibly time consuming and involve third parties. So, you know, teeth straightening and whitening. We put braces and operations on very young children, and yet we regard that as routine. Operations on protruding ears, we do on very young children, quite extreme. Uh, so there's nothing really that tracks. It's not about time. It's not about whether it's risky. It's not about whether it's painful. It's not about whether you need a third party, a doctor or a nurse to do it. We think about things being extreme only when they're things that we wouldn't do. So a woman who is in a particular group, maybe a group of, say, you know, academic colleagues that have never worn makeup would see wearing makeup or having gel nails as an extreme. A woman in a group who routinely have Botox and cosmetic surgery because that's required in their particular profession would see that as routine. So it's absolutely clear that routine and extreme it is not really a spectrum. It's just about what one would do, which is highly socially conditioned by what your group would do, what you would like to do and what your friends do. And the moral judgment, this goes both ways. So I say, if you don't do it, don't feel smug because you don't feel the pressure. And if you do do it, don't look at those who don't and think, well, why don't you? Rather, let's think about culturally, do we want to live in a society where people feel pressure to engage more and more and more? So, Sarah, listening to Heather, what did you think? I, look, I, get, I mean, I get where she's coming from and I think a lot of it makes sense. But I think from, for me, it's more about the societal pressures and rather than like what's a more high-risk procedure. Okay, so I dye my hair, but, you know, lots of people would say, that's all those chemicals, what are you doing? But for me, it's not extreme because pretty much everyone I know does it. <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. But if you're in a different circle, pretty much everyone you know might be getting in injectables. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting point. I suppose it's just ultimately, for me, it's, it, it's just about moderation, you know, and trying as much as possible to not do things because of external influences, but what you actually want. That said, 
like what we actually want is the culmination of a million different things around us, like what our friends do, what we see on social media, what expectations societally are. So it's it's really hard to know where your motivation is ever coming from. Mm, totally. All right, let's get an animal strike. So Heather Widows is a professor at the University of Birmingham, and she's interested in how we attach moral goodness to being beautiful. I've been working on issues of women's rights and justice and global ethics for over 20 years. And gradually I began to see that something was happening, particularly amongst our young women and girls, something that was stopping them doing things, that was preoccupying them, that was changing how they felt about themselves and what they could do and be. And that suddenly started to seem an issue of justice too. I think I also had a young daughter at the time and I was beginning to look at her world and worry about the world she was growing up in. So it was part professional and part personal. Heather says that lookism, so being judged or criticised on the way you look, is something that affects almost everyone. How one actually looks has very little to do with the fact that one can be body shamed, that one can feel insecure about one's appearance. So there is a sense in which the more that bodies are valued, the more that our culture thinks appearance matters, the more that we'll all feel insecure and all fail because the perfect that you're looking for is always unattainable. The ideals that we have are increasingly inhuman plastic perfection ideals. They're not ones that almost anybody can attain. But thanks to modern technology, people are trying to attain the unattainable and the bar of what's considered beautiful keeps being raised. When I'm teaching, I use the example of Queen Elizabeth I, who was apparently very concerned about her beauty. But there wasn't a lot she could do except put white lead on her face and hide her neck under big ruffs to make herself attain that beauty ideal. Now we can do so much. We, we can freeze faces. We can implant completely different body shapes. We can hack away ribs to change body shapes. And very much of it we can do on our high street. It's a very small leap from the hairdresser to the spa to the cosmetic surgeon. There are more cosmetic procedures available than ever before. They promise body beautiful, but at what cost? When Natasha was weighing up whether to get a Brazilian butt lift or BBL, her brain kept running over the risks. I started seeking a lot of reassurance, like from the clinic, and you know, I had a lot of questions. And when I was reassured with the different techniques that they used, um, the certain equipment, like they use a blunt cannula, not like a, you know, overseas their cannulas are a bit different, so it's easier to puncture under the muscle. A cannula is this thin tube that can be inserted into the body to deliver or drain fluid. So in the case of a BBL, a cannula helps perform the liposuction by extracting fat before it's purified and then injected into your buttocks with a syringe. Despite the risks and the recovery nightmare stories, Natasha went through with the surgery. I didn't wake up crying. I was extremely nauseous, but that can come with any surgery. So for me, that was the pain initially, initially. But then obviously um, once that anaesthetic wore off and it was like day three, and that's when it started to like the, the soreness. Like it was just extremely sore. I feel as if though the stomach was the most hardest part of it all. So it's actually not so much the BBL that hurts. It's, it's the liposuction to the stomach. 
I didn't feel pain on my bum. You know, I think the only bad thing that comes with the BBO is that you can't have, you know, the relief of laying on your back. But the bum itself, where the fat's been injected, there was absolutely no pain for me. It was just the the soreness of the stomach and my body just being tired of, of sleeping on my stomach or standing or being on my knees and not putting pressure on my bum. But that's only for two weeks. Yeah, can yeah. you not sit? Yeah, you can't sit. Wow. That's, yeah, that's... you can't sit. And no, you can't even lay on your side. Actually, laying on your side is more detrimental than laying on your bum because lying on your side, obviously they've injected fat onto your side and the fat in your hip is less likely to survive due to the lack of blood circulation on the side of your hips. So it's such a big, big no to lay on your sides. Like you could impact your results. How does anybody go to the bathroom? Like, Oh, my God, don't even ask. <laughs> that, that was so bad for me. Like, you know what? I don't know if I'm just a unique case because I've had this discussion with other girls that have had BBLs and they were fine. For me, it was so hard. Like, it was really hard. Wow. I needed help sometimes, like, especially for, like, number two. It was so hard. So how long were you in pain for? And then, like, when did you start to be able to live life again? Living life. Okay, so by the second week, like, I was at the casino. Like, I went out for dinner. I didn't sit, though. Even though I can sit at two weeks, it was, like, just uncomfortable to. So I'd just go to the bar or, like, you know, like, high-top tables and, like, eat. I would just, like, kind of had the chair behind me, but I wouldn't actually sit on it. She says there were side effects that stuck around. Long-term-wise, I did notice that, like, you know, when I would go to stretch, I felt like this, like, ripping pain down my back. So I think it's after you do liposuction. So I felt like when I went to go pick up something, I'd feel this, like, a ripping pain. I'm like, ah. But I actually took a long time for that to go away. Getting a Brazilian butt lift is an extreme form of enhancement. But there are plenty of more routine procedures that still take out time, energy and resources. Kirsty Clements writes about the beauty industry and was the editor-in-chief of Vogue Australia between 1999 and 2012. So she's been tracking beauty trends for decades. I was actually a beauty editor when all that, all the sort of inroads in that um, cosmeceuticals and things started to come in, cosmetic procedures. So I'd had the Paris lip and I'd had Botox and I've had collagen and I've had Restylane. It's a version of, it's a more synthetic version of collagen. So I've had all of those sort of cosmetic procedures that were not, they're invasive enough, but they're not surgery. Kirsty's written about the baby Botox trend. People in their late teens and early 20s getting anti-wrinkle injections to prevent wrinkles from even forming. There's a young woman I was working with, Bazaar, who said to me, I'm going to go and get some baby Botox. And I looked at her and she was only about 27 and she had the most beautiful skin you've ever seen. It was flawless. And I said, oh, not yet. Like... You know, it's preventative, isn't it? And I said, but preventative probably in about 15 years' time, potentially, if that's where the road you want to go down. But not now. And you don't need fillers. You, your face has got lovely lines and, you know, beautiful, I mean, the cheekbones, what, everything. And she went, oh, thank you. And then she sort of blushed. And I thought, maybe we just don't compliment each other enough. And you can't blame people for doing it. We're constantly, you know, with social media now, it's not, Vogue came out 12 times a year. You're seeing things 12 times in in 10 minutes now, you know, of we suggest this, you should do this, da, 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 you know, like this constant hammering of how you can perfect yourself. So it's it's the strong person who can stand back and say no. So, I mean, I I like skincare and I spend, you know, but that people, girls will spend $800, $900 on, 
you know, moisturisers and exfoliating creams and things like that to get that, what they call glass skin, you know, that sort of overshiny skin. It really looks like you've had a chemical pill. But it's the increasing pressure that's placed upon girls and younger teens that really concerns Kirsty. It reminds her of a quote that she thinks came from Jermaine Greer. It robs, robs younger girls of the time to be just children and younger girls, you know, 14, 15, 16, where they're just enjoying themselves and wearing makeup and having kooky haircuts and dyeing their hair. And it's not all about this extremely high-maintenance rituals of beauty because this sort of warped femininity that, it's, that, that you have to put that much effort in to look like a woman when you look like one before you started. And oftentimes, cosmetic enhancements are packaged up as opportunities for self-care. Self-care is pedicures and facials and face masks and hand massages. It's not filler injected into your cheekbones. I think we've warped that and I think maybe the, the medical profession's warped that too. Keena is a 14-year-old living in Western Sydney. And while 40 years and a bunch of suburbs separate her and Kirsty Clements they have some pretty similar views. It feels like societal brainwashing, you know, kind of telling women, oh, you know, you wanted to get this thing fixed because it bothers you. We're going to make you look like everyone else because you're not beautiful enough the way you naturally are. Kina's mum is actually cosmetic injector Dr Iman Joshi. She's the one who explained the risks of filler earlier. And while Kina respects the work her mum does, she's pretty sceptical of the industry as a whole. That's why so many girls will go into clinics and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I just want to get lip fillers. And then the doctor will be like, oh, you should also get Botox, you know, for wrinkles. You pre, pre, um, preemptive Botox, like preventative. I see so many 20-year-old girls on TikTok and they're talking about getting Botox now so I don't have to get it later. And I'm like, that's an investment for the rest of your life. You're going to have to keep getting Botox and you're just going to be spending more. Who suggested this to you? Like no doctor in their right mind who actually cares about their patients would be suggesting for a 20-year-old to be getting Botox. Keena's seen how young women on social media are wanting to look like someone else. I don't think women should be brainwashed from the age of 13 to think that they're only gorgeous if they look like, you know, not them. Trying to look like your Kylie Jenner for the rest of your life is just going to make you sad. And, you know, it's going to give you so many issues. And when you finally, like, realise I've always looked fine the way I was, you could have done something that you can't take back. You could have gotten surgeries that ruin your health. We've heard the Kardashians and their half-sisters, the Jenners, name-dropped a lot in this series. But Kirsty Clements believes they're responsible for promoting an unattainable and very expensive beauty regime. I don't mean to sound hypercritical of them. I'm using them as a benchmark because it's, it's what they are. To sit there and have SNS nails done, then to have all of those implants and lips and contouring and butt implants and personal trainers and whatever, you know, all that, the teeth, everything... It's a full-time job, the, the maintenance of that. That's not a fun self-care ritual of popping on a face mask at a slumber party. I mean, look at the absolute poster child is that youngest Kardashian. She's talking about Kylie Jenner. When you see what she was before and after, she's just a normal teenage kid with, you know, pretty. And it was like, woomph, you know, and she took, looks like a 40-year-old divorcee, um, you know, and it's fashion now. And it's, that's the kind of ubiquitous look that everyone's asking for. But fashions come and go. 
And that's something Natasha noticed since getting her Brazilian butt lift. I'm starting to notice a bit of trends here and there. You've got like, you know, things on TikTok happening, like this whole fashion, the, the change of fashion now. And I'm noticing this with the younger gen. I saw this thing on TikTok. They're like, who is even wearing skinny jeans anymore? I'm just like, um, me, like, I want to show off my BBO. <laughs> and no, like now this young gen are like wearing loose jeans, like loose jeans is the it thing. And I think this whole fashion change also is going to correlate with body shape because women that are curvier, those clothes don't complement our shape. Yeah. But I don't care because I still truly believe that I know wholeheartedly like a woman's body should never be considered a trend. A woman's body, or any body for that matter, shouldn't be considered a trend. But it happens. And depending on the decade, certain facial features or body parts are celebrated more than others. In the 1920s, wave-thin figures were considered ideal. Then in the 50s, women wanted to be curvy like Marilyn Monroe. Linda Evangelista had the classic 1990s supermodel body and a face to match. But earlier this year, Evangelista opened up about what she calls her cosmetic nightmare. She's been hiding from the public eye for five years after getting a fat freezing procedure that she says left her permanently deformed and brutally disfigured. As Kirsty Clements puts it, she paid for one thing and got the other. There's a horrible irony to it. You know, it's a horrible cautionary tale. But she would have felt the pressure more than anybody that the industry puts on you. The procedure is meant to remove fat, but Evangelista suffered a complication where her fatty tissue actually thickened and expanded from the freezing process. Kirsty sympathises with the ex-model story. I can't only imagine what it must feel like to have been one of the most celebrated beauties in the world and then to age in, in the society as we do and to feel that you have to keep up with other unrealistic images. But when Kirsty saw the so-called nightmare photos, she also thought something else. Like, wait a second, Linda, you don't look like a monster. You look like a regular middle-aged woman. She just was so depressed. She felt she was disfigured. And really, when you, you looked at it, she looked like a normal woman in her mid-50s, like most of us would look like with a little bit of back fat coming out over the bra and a bit of a jowl and a bit of a... It didn't look... She did, certainly didn't look like a horror show that she thinks she looks like. I suppose it comes down to self-perception. When you go from being a top supermodel to an average-sized 50-something, it's a long way to fall. It's horrifying that that's the kind of... We haven't cut ourselves the slack to age in a comfortable way. When beauty is dependent on youth, which is kind of what's communicated to us. It sets up everyone for failure. No matter how many serums, injectables or surgeries are created, we can't stop ageing. That's a reality. But that doesn't stop people from trying. And celebrities are often at the forefront, silently getting tweaks and tucks, then pretending they've aged naturally, while everyone else wonders where they've gone wrong. We're getting sort of very filtered technically, literally filtered images sent to us and then trying to put ourselves against that, which I think can be very exhausting and dispiriting and all of those sort of things. It's the brave woman who says, you know, I don't care what any of you do, I'm happy in my own skin. It's, um, you know, that's the Holy Grail. Next in the fourth and final episode of Face Value, empowerment or exploitation? What and who are we doing this all for? 
Is it ourselves or can we blame the male gaze or the female gaze? And how do those around us react when we start changing? Face Value is a production of ABC RN. It's presented and produced by me, Siobhan Marin. Supervising producer is Sarah Allerley. Sound designed by Bella Tropiano. And our executive producer is Amanda Smith. To hear more Face Value, search for RN Presents in the ABC Listen app and follow ABC Radio National on Instagram to see photos and extra content from the series. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.